Just a second to make sure everybody has one. Uh, if you're a guest, this will help you to at least see the train of thought this morning. And again, for you folks who are guests, we, we welcome you. I can already tell you uh, this morning we're, we're not going to go into uh, our flocks ministry. So just, just relax. We're going we're gonna to get out at uh, the same time we always do. It's a little bit later right now than, uh, than we normally start. But just, just relax. Keep your heart open to what God wants to, to do inside of you. I, I think that most of you are familiar with, uh, with Genesis chapter 3 and what took place there. We make reference to this quite a bit. This is where sin entered into the world. And when that happened, God came down into the garden and he made an incredible prophecy in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And in that prophecy, I mean, right bosomed years ago, in that garden, God prophesied that there would be one who would be born of a virgin who would come to this planet and Satan would bruise his heel. And all of that has been fulfilled. Jesus Christ came, born of a virgin, God in human flesh, and when he came to this planet, he ultimately died on a cross, and Satan had what appeared to be an apparent victory. It bruised his heel, is the way that God put it. But there's one more thing in the prophecy. In fact, it is the oldest unfulfilled prophecy in the Bible. And that is that the Son of God would bruise Satan's what? He'd bruise his dirty, stinking, reeking, rotten, royal head. And you know what? It hasn't happened yet. But it's gonna. Just as sure as those first two parts of the prophecy were fulfilled, Satan's day is coming. And that's where we are in Revelation chapter 20 this morning. You know what's going to happen? God is going to just say the word, and Satan's going to find his rear end right in the midst of the bottomless pit. Satan is going to literally go to hell. I, I remember years ago now, one of little kids in in our church after one of the services he, he comes up to his his mama and says tears streaming down his face oh, i want to be saved you know and and you know the mama is touched by it and she wants to make sure that he's understanding what you know is really going on that it's not just you know everyone's doing it kind of a thing and so she said well honey why do you want to be saved because i don't want to go to heck <laughs> well, this is this is when Satan goes to heck. And I want you to look at it with me in Revelation chapter 20. And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. That's literally, but what I'm loving is he's finally going to shut his dirty, stinking mouth. 
and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more. And buddy, that is going to be a day. And what we've titled this this morning, you can see at the top of your study sheet, is when Christ finally gets what he deserves. What, what this passage is really all about is the thousand-year period that we refer to as the millennium. But that's just part of it. Yes, it is when Christ gets what he deserves, but it's also when Satan gets what he deserves. And so it's a rather long title, but I think it says it. But what is so interesting to me is, check this out. For the last several years, y'all, literally years, we have been in Revelation chapter 6 and 7 and 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. And you know what's happened in that little period of time right there? 14 chapters, I think it is. We have covered... Seven years. And God peels off that much space to deal with seven years. He dealt with all of creation in one chapter. He deals with the thousand year period where Christ finally gets the glory that he deserves in ten verses. A thousand years in ten verses. And you know what? Most of this passage is really... And I mean, this is the time of times, y'all. This is when he gets the glory that he deserves. And yet, most of the chapter is all about Satan being bound and shut up and sealed in the bottomless pit. And so... That just kind of took me back a little bit as I'm preparing. And I'm just, because of that, trying to look and say, so what is up with that? And maybe next week we'll talk a little bit about what really is up with why God would take something that is really what all of the Bible has been pointing to that day and covering it in that little amount of verses. But... Let's talk about what this thousand-year period is actually going to be. We have learned already from Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9, that what this thousand years is, y'all, is this is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb's thousand-year honeymoon. He marries His bride, which is us, in heaven just before the second coming of Christ, we come out of heaven with him at the second coming of Christ. We come to this planet and we partake of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then what this period really is, is a thousand year honeymoon. Now, some of your honeymoons didn't last more than three days. Some of them didn't last more than three minutes. <laughs> but check it out thousand years, the Lord Jesus Christ enjoys his honeymoon with his bride. Not only that, this is according to Hebrews chapter 4, the thousand year period of rest. Hebrews 4 over and over talks about the fact that there is a rest for the people of God. This is that rest. According to Isaiah chapter 11, this is the thousand year 
period of peace. This is where little kids sit on the holes of snakes and just play with them. This is where the wolf lays down with the lamb. Not the lion, the wolf lays down with the lamb. It's a thousand years of peace. According to Isaiah 26, it's a thousand year period of righteousness. You understand? In the millennium, man, when the Lord Jesus Christ is on the throne, righteousness reigns because He is righteousness. The righteousness of God, according to Psalm 66 and verse 4, this is a thousand year period of worship where it says, All the earth shall worship thee. All the earth shall worship thee and sing unto your name. And he repeats it. They shall sing unto your name. According to Acts 3.19, this is the times of refreshing. This is the time God's been looking for. He calls it two verses later in Acts 3.21, the times of restitution. Of all things, it's the time when God puts everything back the way that it was in the Garden of Eden. And for a thousand years, we experience the Garden of Eden on this planet. And listen, the question that I'm faced with this morning is, if God has the ability to simply say the word, and even... Better than that, he doesn't even have to do it himself. I mean, this is an unnamed angel here in Revelation chapter 20 that just gets the authority from God and goes and binds him, shuts him up, puts him in that bottomless pit and seals the door after it's done, and he's dealt with. And I guess the question I've got is, if this is what the millennium is, when Satan is finally bound... And why in the world didn't God already do this thing? Can you relate to that? I mean, have you ever thought about that? I mean, it's not like God's going, man, I wish I could do this. <laughs> he can. So why? What's he, what's he waiting on? I mean, here we are, y'all, we're slugging it out. Week after week after week. And God's got the power to deal with this sucker once and for all. <laughs> but what I want you to see this morning is that there is a glory that God receives in not removing Satan. And man, I can't wait to get into all of the millennium and of all of what that's going to be, and we're going to be able to partake of that. But I'm just telling you, y'all, that is not now. Right now, we're slugging it out, man. And I want you to see today the glory that God receives by not removing Satan. Now, let's just get a little bit of some background information so that we're all on the same page. I think we can do this rather quickly because most of you folks know all about this. Understand that this one that is going to be bound here in Revelation chapter 20 in time past was Lucifer. He was Lucifer, the highest of all of God's creation. The highest of all of God's 
creation. And as we go to the Word of God, what we find in Ezekiel 28 is he was given the highest position. He was given the highest position. He's called in Ezekiel 28 the anointed cherub. That word anointed is the same word translated in your New Testament, Messiah. The Messiah cherub, if you will. He was given, of all created beings, the highest position. He was also given the highest purpose. The name Lucifer means the light bearer. God, every time he shows up in the fullness of his glory, shows up as blazing, blinding light. What Lucifer was, was the light bearer of God. And Ezekiel 28 describes him as made up of beautiful jewels. And the light of God would pass through this being and flood the universe with the glory of God. So he had the highest purpose as the light bearer. And then he was given also the highest privilege. He was the worship leader over beings who were on this planet that God calls in Job chapter 38 and verse 7, sons of God. And he led them to worship God. And according to Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, there came a day, however, when Satan, Lucifer, if you will, was lifted up with pride because, the Bible says, because of his beauty, because he understood his incredible position and, and his purpose and, and his privilege and all, he finally came to the point to where he realized nobody's quite like me. And iniquity was found in his heart in, in Isaiah 14. It is the I wills. I will exalt my throne and I'll ascend into the heights of the clouds and I will be like the Most High. And as a result of that, he became Satan. The adversary of God. That's on your study sheet. He became Satan, the adversary of God. And as he did that, what we find in Scripture, according to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4 and other places, he led an angelic rebellion where as many as a third of the angels went with Satan and they became the demons and devils that we deal with on a daily basis. Not only that, he led mankind into sin. You see him show up in the garden, and he deceives the woman according to what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2. The man, however, was not deceived, but because the woman was deceived in the transgression and ate of it, man in his rebellion and to be with his bride, he partook of the fruit, and he also rebelled in the same way that Lucifer had, but he was behind it all. He led mankind into, into sin, and for 6,000 years, according to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, what Satan has done is he has led a highly regimented and organized attack against God's plans, God's purposes, and God's people. He has led in highly regimented an organized attack against God's plans, God's purposes, and God's people. What it says in Ephesians chapter 6 is we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities 
and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. This is this highly organized network of evil that Satan leads on a daily basis that you and I find ourselves in every day as that battle in the unseen world takes place above our heads. But listen, for 6,000 years, everything that God has sought to do, Satan, God's adversary, has come against it, and not the least of in coming against it is what he has done to God's people. We've talked about this through the years. You don't ever get to the place where you become hardened about this. What has taken place through the years as Satan has come against God's people is that they have been murdered, and that would have been humane. The torture that they went through to get there has been just absolutely incredible. They've been burned at the stake. They have had their eyes burnt out of their sockets with hot pokers. Women, pregnant women, have had babies cut out of their stomachs and held above their heads before they, they killed them. We could go on and on about how that they would be placed on the racks and stretched limb from limb. They'd be tied to the back of horses and drugged through cobblestone streets and sharp rocks. And, and again, we could go on and on and on with all of this. This is what has been going on. And so the... All of understanding who Satan is and what's been going on for the last 6,000 years really leads to some penetrating questions, one that we've already talked about. But this one we haven't. First of all, and, and let, me, let me just give, give you both of them and then we'll talk about them. If God knew, why did he? And then go ahead and get the other one. If God can, why doesn't he? Okay, let's talk about the first one for just a second. If God knew that Lucifer was ultimately going to do this and become the adversary, and that when he created man, that man was going to be plunged into sin, and all of this stuff was going to happen, if God knew all of it, why did he do it in the first place? We had this question in our Sunday night sessions. We've been dealing with Satan and some of that. One of the questions that one of the young ladies in our church asked just recently is just that. I mean, if God knew all this... Why did he do it? And you know what? It's the question of the ages. Because God certainly knew that it would happen. In fact, what it says is that Christ was slain before what? Before the foundation of the world. So God already knew that this was going to happen. So again, if he knew, then why did he? And what works for me? is that God is who He is. He is God because of the attributes that He possesses. And in the midst of those attributes, certainly God is holy and God is just. God is omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. But God is also love. And flowing out of God's attributes of love are many other attributes, such as God is grace and God is mercy. And you see, if God never has to demonstrate grace or mercy, His attributes could never be put on display. 
I believe part of the reason that God actually did all of this thing is God, because He is God, wanted to put the full manifestation of His glory on public display. And in doing so, He had to manifest His grace and manifest His mercy. And what is so cool about that is you and I are the recipients of the glory of God as it's revealed through His grace and through His mercy this morning. But if God can, I mean, if all He has to do is say the word and He's bound Satan, then why why doesn't He? And this leads to what I'm calling some key deductions that cause us to contemplate this thing. Okay, follow it on your study sheet. Since God does have the right and power to remove Satan, and He does, there must be some reason He hasn't already done it. And secondly, the reason must be incredible because of what has already cost God not to remove Him. Do you realize what it has cost God not to remove Satan? First and foremost, above everything else, y'all, it cost Him the life of His only begotten Son. Not to mention the lives, as we just mentioned a few minutes ago, listen, of over 50 million martyrs And again, on top of the ones who have been martyred, we've not even mentioned the ones that were just simply tortured or exiled or maimed or imprisoned or left homeless or childless or destitute. Listen, if all of this in not removing Satan has caused the death of his only son and the incredible torture and bloodshed and murder of over 50 million of his people in the last 2,000 years, all I'm saying to you is whatever this reason is that God has not already dealt with him must be absolutely incredible. And I want you to look with me in the book of 1 John as this morning we seek to... Try to get some kind of answer as to what is really going on here. Let's look at some key biblical comparisons. First John chapter four. And I, does your study sheet or say four? It says three. Okay, that's what it should say. First John chapter three, and I want you to look at the middle of verse eight. Oh, in fact, it's on your study sheet, right? The middle of verse 8, it says, For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. In other words, okay, just make sure you understand that part. Here's why God came to this planet in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay? For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Okay, now think with me, y'all. Is Satan still working? 
Well, I, I thought that he came to destroy the works of the devil. What do you mean he's still working? You mean God had a purpose that was not accomplished through Christ's coming? And if you begin to look at what some of the works of the devil actually are, we could take a a long time this morning. You'll need to write quickly because we're not going to take a long time on this. But just to get it in your head, if you want to understand what some of the works of the devil actually are toward unbelievers, what he seeks to do is blind them to the gospel according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. And then in Mark 15, he lets us know that when the gospel does go forth, what he seeks to do is he seeks to remove the word as soon as it's been sown. In other words, he never wants you as a lost person to really understand the gospel. And when the gospel through the word of God comes to you, what it says that he does is he immediately seeks to get the word of God out before the light of the glorious gospel can shine unto you and he can bring you out of your sinfulness. That's the way that he works. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 26, it says that he holds them captive in his snare. And the verse goes on to say, at his will. He exercises his own will in behalf of those who are lost, and he holds lost people captive in his trap. That's the works of the devil toward unbelievers. Let's talk about believers for just a minute. According to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, he brings persecutions. You ever receive any of those? In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, he brings afflictions. In Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1, he brings resistance. In 1 Thessalonians 2.18, he brings difficulty. In 1 Thessalonians 3.5, he brings temptation. In Revelation 12.10, he brings condemnation. In Genesis 3.1 and in other places, he brings doubt. In 1 Corinthians 14.33, he brings confusion. And what I want you to do, I want you to look at that list that we just made there of some of the works of the devil toward believers. And I just want to ask you, is there any of those works that you have not been the recipient of? We all have. And the question is this, if God became flesh, listen now, to destroy the works of the devil... Which work of the devil did he actually destroy? Because we can look at that list and say, well, it must not have been those. So now we're really getting loaded up with questions. Because, I mean, why didn't God just lock the sucker up in the bottomless pit before he did any of the works? Right? I mean, if he had the power to destroy him, why not do that? And if God became flesh for the purpose of destroying his works, and yet Satan still has the power to do to unbelievers and believers all the things that we just listed there. What work of the devil did Jesus actually destroy? Do you know? I want you to turn back with me, if you will, to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2.
He's talking about the children of God in verse 13, and then he comes into verse 14, and he says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, Christ, also himself likewise took part of the same. In other words, he became a human being, and he became a partaker of the same flesh and blood that you and I have been a partaker of in our humanness. Why? That through death, He might destroy Him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. In other words, and just just follow the train of thought, y'all. What he's saying here is that Jesus Christ became a human being. He became flesh and blood so that he could do one thing. So that he could, what? So that he could die. And by dying, destroy the devil. Now, okay, I would say that the work of the devil is going to be destroyed when he's locked up and stored in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. But God says the devil's work was destroyed through the death of his son. And what that tells us is that there must be something more that God was seeking to accomplish in defeating the devil than just locking him up in the bottomless pit. He could have done that, but there was something that God had to do that He could do no other way but through death. Look again at verse 14. And just to get you... Look at it. How does God say... Toward the end of the verse. How does God say that the Lord Jesus Christ destroyed the devil? Through what? Through death. Okay. The devil had the power... Of death. And what verse 14 says is Christ's death removed the power. But what power? What power in the one who had the power of death, what power did the Lord Jesus Christ actually destroy? Because as we've already talked about, Satan can, can still beat us, he can hurt us, he can afflict us, he can torture us, and what's even more than that, he can kill us. That sounds a whole lot to me like the power of death. So what power of death did he actually destroy? And I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. How has Christ destroyed the one who had the power of death? Well, I think it's important that we define what the power of death actually is. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, at the end of verse 54, it says, Death is swallowed up in victory. And, and, and Paul is so excited about this in verse 55. What he actually does is he personifies death. And what he does is he gets up in death's face and he's talking to it. That's, that's what's happening. He says, oh, death, where is thy sting? 
O grave, where is thy victory? And, and, and then he, he, he steps out of his conversation with death, and it's almost like a little aside. And what he does is he peels off a little area to do a little teaching for us. Okay, and look at what he says. Verse 56. The sting of death is sin. And why is that? Because, now listen, only unforgiven sin makes death something to fear. I, w- I, w- I want you to listen very, very carefully to me. If you're here this morning and you have never had your sin removed by the Lord Jesus Christ, death is something that you need to fear. And I don't even have the ability to communicate to you the fear that ought to run through your veins if you take your last breath and enter into eternity and you are still, from God's vantage point, a sinner. Because according to what the Bible says, and and not some wild-eyed, fanatical Baptist preacher, what God's Word says is that if you enter into eternity with sin on your account, you will be cast into a place that burns with everlasting fire that never actually consumes you so that there is eternal pain and torment forever and ever and ever. And God's Word is clear that people for all of eternity will beg for just a drop of water to cool their tongue. And a thousand years from now, people that enter there will still be there and still be in pain and torture. 10,000 years from now, they will still be there. A 100,000 years, 10 trillion years, and you can go on and on and on. Listen, there is most definitely a sting in death, and it is sin. And oh, listen, if sin is on your account, it is something that you most desperately better fear. And again, the reason for it all is just that little three-letter word, Sin, because sin is what makes death a, a entrance into hell. And, and we saw just a couple of minutes ago that Satan's goal for unbelievers is to keep you blinded to the truth of what Christ has done so that you don't have to go there. He'll find any way possible to bring you into a service like this, and when the message is going out, blind your mind through some some way. And, and if the word does go forth, according to what we saw in Mark chapter 4 and verse 15, what he wants to do is as soon as it comes, immediately he wants to snatch that thing away before you actually understand how sin can be removed from your life. Because listen now, when sin has been removed... There is no fear in death. Look at verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the strength or or power of sin is the law. Romans chapter uh, 
7, verses 12 and, and, and 13, what it says is that God gave the law to reveal to us His holiness so that we might understand what holiness is all about. Not just so we could understand holiness, but so that we could understand what sin is all about and so that sin could appear to be sin in light of God's holy standard, which He is. He gave that law in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10 says that our violation of God's law has cursed us. It put us under sin's penalty, the penalty of death. Now listen. That's why 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8 says that Jesus Christ was manifested so that He could destroy the work of the devil so that He could, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, so that He could die. So that according to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, He could taste death for every man. And you see what happened when Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, came to this planet and died in, on the cross, just like a, a bee has a stinger and he comes and plants that thing in you. And, ah! It stings like crazy. You know what? Once that stinger is in you, that bee is just a, like a fly, man. It just cruises around, has no power left in it. And what happened on the cross is Satan took death and sin, the strength of, of, of the law, and he planted that thing into the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, basically, Satan is just flying around trying to make you all feared about death when there is nothing to fear in death. Because Jesus Christ has already take, taken the sting of death and it has no power in the life of somebody who has had their sin removed. And, and you know what? Now, the only thing that Satan can do is kill you. And you know what the most wonderful thing in all the world that Satan could do for us? Is kill us. Because, man, when we are dead, what happens is we go to be with the one that we love and that we long to see. And, and this is why in Philippians chapter 1, th this is why Paul comes along and he says, you know what, I'm in a straight betwixt two. Which is our way of saying, you know, I'm between a rock and a hard place. He says, what I, what I want to do is I want to go ahead and be done with this thing and just go be with Jesus. But he says, what's more needful for you, the Philippians, is for me to hang around so that I can kind of help you guys with this thing. But he says, you know what I want to do? I want to go be with Christ. Do you know what the next part of it is? Which is far better, better than what? Than hanging around this awful place. I'd, I'd rather just die. I'd rather Satan just kill me. Because death has absolutely no sting in the life of a person whose sin has been removed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the, you know what? All that other stuff that we've been talking about, the persecutions and afflictions and all of that stuff, you know what? That has no power over us. 
The power that Satan had was the power to condemn our sinful soul to an eternal hell. And because of what Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross and took the sting of death out, all of that stuff that we moan and groan and complain about is just part and parcel of how we have the ability to glorify God in Satan's face because we are a constant reminder to him that he doesn't have any power left. And let me give you just a... Now, in light of everything that we went through at the beginning, I know some of you are going, doesn't seem like the message fits with what we were talking about. That's because we're not done yet. Okay? No... no I want, to, I want to show you a, a key biblical illustration that I think makes the, makes the point. Turn back to the book of Exodus, if you will. sure that you, you got the point. What Christ did through his death is he didn't remove Satan, obviously. He didn't remove him. What he did is he removed sin. And when he did that, he destroyed the only real power that Satan actually has over us. You see, right now, God is, is receiving glory on this planet. Not in the same way that He is in the millennium, like in Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be glorified because Satan has been removed. You know how the Lord Jesus Christ is being glorified now? Not in removing Satan. He's being glorified now by rescuing sinners. That's the plan. That's how he's done this thing. And, and, and the illustration that I think helps all of this to crystallize in my mind is in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16. Now, this is in the context of the, the plagues. Pharaoh has taken God's people. He's holding them in bondage. And, and God is in the midst of seeking to deliver them. Now, have you ever wondered, as you read through the book of Exodus and you came through this deal, God's people are in bondage. And so here comes this plague. And so, you know, they go through this little rigmarole of this thing, and Pharaoh finally says, Uncle! And so, you know, it's looking like he's going to release God's people, and then he doesn't. And so God brings another plague. Well, I'll try this. 
And so God tries something else, and then, uncle! And just about the time you thought that he was going to release God's people, he says, no, I'm not going to do it. And so God says, uh, I'll try this. I mean, that's what it looks like, isn't it? That, you know, boy, God just can't find a way to bust through. Measly little Pharaoh. Come on, y'all. God could have exhaled from heaven and consumed his behind. God could have annihilated the guy any time he wanted to. It, hey, this is no big trip for him. So why in the world you go through all of these ten plagues and then you bring it to this whole Red Sea thing? What? Why? And do you see the correlation? It's just like, why doesn't he do this with us? And look at what he says in Exodus chapter 9. In verse 16, God says, In, in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up, Pharaoh, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. You know why God didn't just annihilate him? Because God had a plan. He wanted to get his name to the end of the earth. And not just his name. His glory. And you see, if God would have exhaled and consumed him, you know what? The power of God would have most certainly been revealed. But what God wanted was he wanted to make a name for himself. And that's why all of this stuff happened. God was in the midst of making a name for himself. We talk about name brand clothes. You know what name brand clothes are? It's a name that carries a reputation. And what God was wanting to do was put his reputation on display for all the world. And you know how he would do that? Through delivering people who were in bondage. And that message of a delivering God that was gracious and merciful enough to bring men out is a message God wanted communicated to the entire world. And, and would you go over to the book of Joshua for just a second? Just to, to show you that God knew what He was doing, would you look at Joshua chapter 2? This is, this is Rahab the harlot here. And I want you to look at what her testimony is as the two spies come to her house. Joshua chapter 2, and look at verse 10. She says, For we 
have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when ye came out of Egypt, and what ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sihon and Og, where, whom ye utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. And what I want you to see is what led to the salvation of this woman is what God did in delivering His people and in the exodus through Pharaoh. And God said, listen, that's the very reason we're going through all of this is because I'm in the midst of making a name for myself so that people all over this planet can understand the delivering power of Almighty God that He takes notice of sinners. You go over, and I want you to, into the book of Isaiah, chapter 63. Isaiah 63. Look at verse 12. Uh, Make it verse... uh, Verse 11, Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people, saying, Where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him, that led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them, watch now, to make himself an everlasting name. And go back to Psalm 106. Psalm 106. And look at verse 7. Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them. Why? For his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power to be known. And what I'm suggesting to you guys is that the reason that right now God doesn't go ahead and lock him up in the bottomless pit is he's got a plan. And the plan is to glorify himself through what he has done in redeeming us out of the bondage of our sin. And he wants to use us to be the way that his name is made known throughout the entire world. That's what this thing is all about. Yes, Satan is going to get his and he's going to be put in the bottomless pit and because of that, Jesus is going to get what he deserves. But right now, what God wants is he wants to get what he deserves through me and you. And we take the God of this universe and we put Him on display and in Satan's face we demonstrate that God is worthy of glory. And that's, that's real nice. And it works for me. 
I, I, I hope that I'm not seeking to answer a question that nobody's asking today. I, I think that we all come to the point, oh, what is this thing really all about? You know what it's all about? It's all about the glory of God. And we can learn some incredible truths from the glory that will be the Lord Jesus Christ when He does establish His millennium, or His kingdom in the millennium. Now, now, now listen with me, okay? W- would you please do your best to listen with all of your heart right now? In the millennium, the Lord Jesus Christ will be present among us. His presence will be made manifest on this earth. And all of the earth will worship Him and sing unto His name. They shall sing unto His name. It's because His presence is manifest. Now right now, His literal presence is not made manifest because He's here. It's done so by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God. But on that day, He'll be glorified because we're in His presence. What is unbelievable, y'all, is God has given us now the privilege of living our lives in the fullness of His glory, in the fullness of His manifest presence. And I want to ask you right now, how many believers in the year 2001 do you think live their lives in the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in the fullness of His glory? What percentage would you say? Somebody take a stab. What what would you say, really? 5%? 10%? 5%? Anybody think that's high? And, and that's, that's sobering. But let me just ask you, do, do you? Do you live in the manifest presence of the Lord Jesus Christ on a daily basis? Where His glory... I mean, you, just, just like what's going to happen in the millennium, in Malachi chapter 4, the Son of Righteousness is going to appear on this planet and He will shine and He will burn up His enemies. What I'm asking you is, has the kingdom come in you? Do you live in the manifest presence of His glory where His light shines on you, in you, and through you? Would you? You're in Psalms, aren't you? Uh, why don't you go back to Exodus for just a second? Exodus 33. And Moses is in this conversation with God about leading the people. 
And, and what he says, now he, he's gone up, and, and he's had conversations with God on, on several occasions by this point. But what I want you to see is what he says in verse 13. He says, now therefore I pray thee. This is Moses talking to God. I therefore, there, therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight. And consider that this nation is thy people. And he said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he said unto thee, If thy presence go not with me, carry us, us, us not up hence. For where, wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou, will, thou goest with us, your presence being with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And he said, here, here it is, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Yeah, God, I, I'm into all of this. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to lead us and, and I'm going to be your representation here on the earth. But God, what I'm asking you is I'm asking you to show me your glory. And I want you to see what God says to him. Look at verse 19. And he said, hey, I'll make all my goodness pass before thee, and I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. Do you know what he's saying? The only people that see the glory of God ones that have the manifested presence of God are dead people. And you know what? Moses lived his life and because the only people that see the glory of God are dead people, he didn't see it. You can't be in the manifest presence of God and be living. What is kind of cool? Moses dies, and just like all the Old Testament saints, he went to where? Abraham's bosom. Didn't see the glory. But one day... In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up, and you know what he did? Remember, we just talked about this a few weeks ago. He rolled his flesh back to reveal who he really was. Who was he? The glory of God. And guess who was standing there? Moses. And you know what? 1,500 years after Moses Prayed, I beg you, show me your glory. 1,500 years later, God answered the prayer. But the point I'm wanting you to see this morning is that for you and I to live with His kingdom come in us, 
with His glory and His manifest presence revealed in us, it will not happen as long as we're living. We must die. And this is why Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says that we bear in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Listen. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in us. And you know what I'm afraid of, y'all? And this is what's going to take us back to where we were at the beginning. I just have this sneaky suspicion that maybe, just maybe, in the midst of all of the ways that God has blessed us around here, that we're content to just have God bless us. live in the manifest presence of His glory. And that's why He hasn't already cast Satan in the bottomless pit. Because that's what He wants to do in me and you right now. Because that's how He wants to be glorified on the earth at this present time. And guys... For you and I to keep living our lives seeking God's hand. We miss His face. And listen, that's why God never tells you in the Word of God to seek His hand. Over and over and over, though, he tells you, seek my face. Seek my manifest presence in your life. You know, in the Old Testament, don't, don't fall asleep on me or, or lose your train of thought. In the Old Testament, we've talked about it before. We've kind of drawn it out here, the, the tabernacle. There was the three parts of that thing. And the, the innermost part was called the what, y'all? The Holy of Holies. And what was it that was right here before you enter into the Holy of Holies? Somebody? The, the veil. I feel like where we are, and I'll be honest with you, maybe the reason that I feel like this is where we are is because this is where I feel like your pastor is. I feel like we've entered in and we're just content to get over here by the veil every once in a while as God just kind of reaches out His hand to bless us. And we'll grab the blessing and dance all around because, man, oh man, isn't this cool? We seek the blessing, and the blesser is on the other side of the veil. 
We seek the gift. The giver is on the other side of the veil. And through what Jesus Christ did when He took the stinger out of death, you know what He did? The veil was rent. Once a year, the high priest was able to go in, and buddy, if he didn't have it all together, man, he dropped dead like that. And now, because he took the sting of death, we have the ability to enter in to his presence, to come into his face, and to live our lives there. You know why we don't go in? Because the path that leads in there is a path of death. It's got blood all on it. If there's anything we fear, it's that dying thing. We've already rejoiced about the fact, not our physical death, The death we fear is the death to me. The death to my flesh. And so, we'll just kind of hang around the veil every once in a while and when the hand of God comes out to blood, we <laughs> got it! You know who actually gets in there? No man, no man sees my glory and lives. His flesh has got to die. And guys, we mess up the whole plan of God in this dispensation when we're content to live out here when the manifested presence of God is available to us. In the millennium, and I wish we had the time to go there, but in Habakkuk chapter 2, and let me just give you the reference, don't turn. Habakkuk chapter 2, in verse 14, you know what it says about the millennium? Listen. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Now get it. In the millennium, the manifest presence of God is going to be on the earth. God says, I want my manifest presence on the earth right now, and that's my plan to get glory in Satan's face through you. You can live in my manifest presence. In the millennium, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Paul prayed in Philippians chapter 3, in verse 10, that I may know Him. I want to have the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. But you know what Philippians 3.10 says? Listen, what it says is that you'll never have the knowledge of His glory without the fellowship of His suffering. 
And not only the fellowship of his suffering, but his death. Because only when there's a death can there be a resurrection. And only in the resurrection is there power. So check it out. No death, no knowledge, no fellowship of suffering, no death, no fellowship of his suffering, no death, no power, no knowledge of him. And you know why we don't know him? You know why the knowledge of the glory of the Lord isn't revealed in us right now? It comes down to that same issue. We don't want the fellowship of his suffering. And when it comes, you know what we do? When God is trying to use all of that to fulfill his purpose and receiving glory in this period of time, we sit around and lick each other's wounds and moan and groan and complain about how hard we have it when all of this happens so that the glory of God might be made manifest on the earth right now through us. I don't know about y'all, but boy, I don't want to play church, man. I don't want to live my life and not fulfill God's purpose in not destroying the devil by putting him in the bottomless pit when what he's seeking to do right now is let his kingdom come in me where his manifest presence is in my life and I have the knowledge of the glory of the Lord in me in the same way that it will be in the millennium. And that's the way that it will be glorified now. And listen, anything less than that, guys. And we're missing what this thing is really all about. And I would just want to ask you to, to join me. You know what? I, I feel like in the midst of all of the blessing of God and everything that I have been busy doing, seeking to glorify God, you know what I feel like? I feel like I've just kind of gotten to a point where I'm just a little stagnant. And that seeking the face of God and being satisfied with nothing but the glory of God. You know what? We've had times like that as a church. I've had times like that as an individual. And it's time now for us to break up our fallow ground and seek the Lord so that he might get the glory that he deserves right now through his death. As his death is born out in us. Because as his death is born out in us, his life is made manifest. And he makes a name for himself around the world. Because people understand when the glory of God rests on somebody. And they also understand 
when it doesn't. Let's bow. I've with you this morning. I just wonder if, if maybe you wouldn't be honest with me for just a sec. With, with our heads bowed, nobody looking around. How many of you would say, you know what, Mark, I, I know what you talk about because I kind of feel like I've gotten to the point of being content with just having the blessing of God but I've not been really living in the manifest presence of His glory. Would you raise your hand right now if that would describe where you are? And man, I, I appreciate your honesty. You can put your hands down. I want to give you some time right now to talk to the Lord. And would you seek His face? Would you just get honest with Him and say, Oh God, I have gotten comfortable with just being around you just receiving your blessing. But, oh God, I beg you, show me your glory. May your kingdom come in me. May your manifest presence shine through me. May I know you the way that the earth will know you when you establish your kingdom on the earth. And again, with nobody looking around, how many of you would say, yeah, I did. I I talked to God about that today, and I'm asking Him to make today a day of change in my life. Would you give that testimony? If, don't, don't, don't do it for me. But if you prayed that, would you just acknowledge that by lifting your hand in the air right now? Bless your hearts. Oh, God. In my humanness, Lord, I, I wish this would have come out better today. I, I know that when humanly we do it 
it's a good indication that you didn't. And I just want to ask you that beyond the human element in this room today and beyond the, the human words, I pray that you would take the words that we have seen from your word today and I pray that they would find entrance into the soil of our hearts. And I pray that in my life today and in the life of my honest brothers and sisters, I pray that the rest of this day would be, would be different. That we would begin once again to live with the yearning to humble ourselves before the veil and get down on our knees and crawl before you in repentance into your presence crucified with Christ dead and yet living yet not us but you living through us and I pray that when we wake up tomorrow that our first waking thought would be that we would live in your manifest presence. And I pray that every day this, this week that we might burn with a passion that at one time burned within us for your glory and yet we've been content out in the outer courts. Lord, I, I pray that this will not just be another Sunday, another message. I, I pray that our lives will be forever changed as we seek to glorify you in these last days according to your perfect plan. We ask in Jesus' name.